0: Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 5. We are reading verses 1 through 18. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofs colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralyzed. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we give thanks for your word this morning, we come as those who desire light and truth that only you can give. It is you, Lord Jesus, who has the words of eternal life. It is you who possesses all truth. And so illumine our hearts and our minds this morning and take us to hear your very voice as we read your scriptures together. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Last year, the congregation here afforded me the opportunity to travel with Maria Dinsmore on one of her annual or biannual trips to Cuba, and I went with a team from, uh, from Christ Church and some other places around. And while in Cuba, one of the most amazing things are the evangelistic opportunities that no doubt, as many of you have participated in and many others have heard the stories On one particular morning, it was almost humorous, the range of conversations that I had. First, my guide delivered me to the house of a man who was a PhD-educated linguist. He was very bright, very capable young guy who also found himself out of work and frustrated by the circumstances of his life. And he had intellectual objections to the gospel and was not really interested in talking about the claims of Jesus. And so after that conversation, we went to the neighboring house to the church where there was an elderly lady who would never visit the church. She lived literally five feet from the church, and she said, I'm just not interested. And so we had a conversation with her about the claims of the gospel and then where church fit into those claims, and she said, oh, fantastic, I'll be there next week. And then we walked around the corner, and our guide led us to another conversation where we were in conversation with a woman who had a son who was suffering. He was an invalid, mentally handicapped. She suffered greatly and her son was participating in the conversation, responding to certain things. Three very different conversations that were taking place in a whirlwind amount of time. And the one thing that those three conversations had in common were the claims of the gospel. That Jesus extends grace into each and every one of those moments. That's his promise. And when we come to the Gospel of John, we see that same dizzying array of conversations. In chapter 3, we find a religious professional, educated and respected, comes to Jesus by night in secrecy to ask questions of him. And then in chapter 4, we find a broken woman She's a Samaritan, that means she's a polytheist. And she also has a sordid and complicated ethical past as she has had five husbands and lives with another man. And then chapter five, we are back in Jerusalem at a mysterious pool that archeologists have now located just northeast of the temple, where many would go with a superstitious hope that they would be healed and we have a man never told his name, but he is an invalid and he has been lame for 38 years. These three people can have nothing in common, it seems, on the surface of things. And yet they are united for us in the gospel of John by the same address. That is that Jesus meets them in the midst of their need, even though those needs are very different. He defines the ultimate solution to their need with one thing, and that is that they must be born again. They must place their trust, their belief, and their hope in him. And so these three who are seemingly worlds apart have absolutely this one thing in common. This is the greatest need that they have. The successful religious professional, the sinful idolatrous woman, and the invalid And it is as if John has collected together the entire range of humanity across these three chapters and drawn us all to Jesus. And this applies for all of us today as well. Wherever we are on the map and where we would plot ourselves inside of the human story and what class, what needs that we have, that Jesus presents himself as the one who addresses your fundamental need. And that we must have this encounter with him. And so this morning we'll look specifically at this encounter with the invalid by the pool as Jesus meets him in all of his pain and all of his suffering. And we'll consider exactly what it is that we learn about what an encounter with Jesus looks like once again. Because we see different features of it here. And what began as a private conversation becomes a very public conversation in chapter 5. And the three things that I would like to draw your attention to this morning about this conversation. The first is, is that as we encounter Jesus, he confronts our resignation. You perhaps notice Jesus's approach to the invalid is rather strange. If you look in verse six, you see the question that Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? Many people have puzzled as to the nature of that question. Why does Jesus begin there? He walks up to the man who's by the pool, who's been waiting there evidently for a long time. Jesus knew he had been there, and he asked him, do you want to be healed? Many people would just cynically say, oh, well, of course he wants to be healed. That's why he's there by the pool. But it's important for us to remember the context. 38 years, this man has been lame. He has struggled, and in the ancient world, to be an invalid was to have many, many burdens hoisted upon you. It would be extremely inconvenient and difficult even in the modern world today, but then even more so. The basic concerns of mobility, of hygiene, the social isolation that would take place, the living on the charity of others, that these were the most apparent and acute needs this man had. And he had dealt with these for 38 years. For a long time, he had waited by this pool. For 38 years, he had been overlooked. For 38 years, he said, he had been pushed aside as others made their way to the pool in this superstitious hope of being healed. For 38 years, he had survived on the charity of others. For 38 years, he lived in the frustrations of a broken body. And as you begin to count the pains across those 38 years, you have to ask the question, what did all of that do to him? And then we ask the more profound question, what do our sufferings do to us as well? because it's the same dynamics at play. But what we find in this man is that his sufferings had led to a certain type of resignation. He was resigned to his sufferings. Jesus asks him the question with great intention, do you want to be healed? Because that was not very clear and you'll note that the man never fundamentally answers the question. Rather he cast himself as the victim And understandably so. He said, when I try to get in the pool to be healed, somebody else beats me there. I have no one to help me. This was his answer to Jesus' question. In his sufferings, he was dealing with his crippled body. But one of the unique abilities of suffering is that it also injures our soul and it paralyzes us there. There that we become hardened and we become cynical. There's room for great compassion for those among us who suffer so deeply. But Jesus is going to this very sensitive and sacred place with this man where he's taking him right to the heart of his resignation because it it was his resignation that was going to keep him from entrusting himself to Jesus and experiencing all the powers of new creation that Jesus was extending to him. We saw that his answer was really to place himself in the the position of the victim. The question for the man was this. Was he willing to believe that Jesus would do something for him? As one who had suffered greatly, he was tempted to simply give up on God, to give up that God was actually good and God was loving and God could do something about his circumstances. He had 38 years to normalize this process of having a broken body. He was used to it. He was accustomed to it. And he was, of course, questioning God's willingness to help. But there's also a deeper issue that goes on here in Jesus' question. The deeper issue for those who suffer in the face of so much disappointment, was this invalid, this man crippled by life, was he willing to summon hope that things could be different about the future? Was he willing to dare and risk that when Jesus asked him The question, there might be a solution on the other side of that. Would he invest his hope in that direction, that the future could take on a different shape? Because certainly, in all the disappointment across 38 years, this man understandably would have learned just not to get his hopes ever that high. The disappointment, the backside of it, is not worth it. And this is what Jesus has to first address in this lame man lying by a pool, a place where cripples and blind people were simply collected in order to deal with them. It was somewhat of a home, not where healings actually happened in the pool, we have no record of that, but rather where there was some false hope given to people and they could be managed and taken care of. And Jesus meets this guy, in the middle of all of that. And he addresses a very sensitive topic with him, directing him to place his hopes and his trust in him. Now the second thing that happens though is that as we encounter Jesus, he exposes all of our attempts to evade him. You'll note that the man gives a halfway answer to Jesus and then Jesus tells him to get up and rise and walk. And when that man rises, friends, that is his act of faith. He is entrusting himself to the words that Jesus has just spoken him. And rather than sitting in his disappointment and in his shame and in all the gunk that had, that had cluttered his soul for 38 years, he rises and he obeys Jesus and takes up his mat. And that is what salvation looks like. We hear the word of Jesus and then we follow it and embrace it in faith. And it leads to obedience. And so the man does that. But then in verse 10, we discover the second half of the story. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now it's so fascinating to think about the scene. One who had been lame for 38 years begins to walk and he's carrying his mat on Saturday. And the preoccupation for the religious authorities and those who were around was the fact that the man was carrying his mat and not the fact that he was walking. But he's walking, carrying his mat, And so the religious professionals of the day were then accusing him and looking for the reason as to why he's carrying his mat. Now, you may find this bizarre, and there's a little bit of history that's necessary to understand what was happening. The prophet Jeremiah ministered in a very difficult time in Jerusalem, and it was where the southern kingdom of Israel had really forsaken the law of God in so many ways, And so the Sabbath day, a day that was reserved for praising God and gathering in the temple and gathering in synagogues to read the word of God, to offer prayers and supplications, to call on the name of God, as we read in Psalm 92, that was what the Sabbath was about. When rather than engaging in those activities, the people had begun to do commerce on the Sabbath. And so in chapter 17, Jeremiah instructs the people of Israel, the church of his day, that they were not to carry burdens into the gates of Jerusalem. And what this meant is they were not to conduct business. They were not to bring their items through the gates of Jerusalem to sell them. It was not to be a marketplace. This was the intent of Jeremiah's critique. Over the years, as Israel went through many different periods of history, the Pharisees came to power. And they were the conservative religious types who really loved the Bible, and they did a lot of good things. Jesus actually commends them on certain practices that they had. But there's also a profound critique that Jesus has here, because the Pharisees began to construct rules built around Jeremiah 17. They said, well, God tells us through the prophet Jeremiah that we're not to bear burdens on the Sabbath. So that means that you're not supposed to carry anything. But it's not really feasible to not carry anything. So we need to create the rules around what you can carry and what you cannot. And in doing so, we will then give everyone the rules that they need so that they will know how to please God. And then we can create two communities, those who really please God and those who don't. And we have the collection of these rules. It's called the Mishnah. And there are actually 39 rules for how to keep the Sabbath. Implied was that you were not allowed to carry a mat. You weren't allowed to carry an object much larger than an infant because you can imagine that if you had a baby, you couldn't just leave it there all day. But you couldn't carry a mat. And so this man was accused of breaking the Sabbath and the preoccupation with what he was doing to break their laws Laws that, by the way, were not in accord with the word of God, that were added to it, they were supplements, they were attempts to be faithful, but they were misguided. And yet all of religious observance and practice and faithfulness was being defined around these man-made traditions. And so this man is being accused of breaking the Sabbath for carrying a mat something that God didn't forbid. And friends, it's important for us to see the ways that we try to evade the grace of God because Christian communities have not gotten past this fundamental error that existed in the church of that day. That we often are fond of taking the commands that God gives to us and then we expand them and we add to them. And we put further prescriptions on them, and then we begin to count people who are in and who are out. And we forget that we have then descended many steps from the command of God, and we've created our own rules, and we forget that we have then cut ourselves off. And this is the primary way that the church becomes what is often classed as legalistic, where we construct our man made rules. And we begin to apply them as if they are God's rules. We take the command of God and we get very specific. We've done that with regards to the Sabbath. We've done it with regards to about everything that you can imagine. Just go to the Christian bookstore and you'll see the how-to books full of commands beyond the word of God. This is the first way that Jesus exposes our attempt to evade him is where we construct rules that try to protect us from actually having to deal with the living God. The second thing that's happening here, though, is that Jesus, he does want to redirect this conversation where they're preoccupied with the the fact that the man has broken the rules and they are not preoccupied with the fact that he's walking that somebody who was on their back for 38 years, who had no mobility, no hygiene, no hope, is now walking around and answering questions. And it's very obvious. And they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. And John Calvin perhaps captures it best. He says, when this man rises and takes up his mat, his taking up of that mat was his way of praising God. He's enacting the miracle that had fallen on him and he is celebrating and giving thanks as he takes up that mat. And this is not breaking a law. Jesus didn't sit loose on the Sabbath. He is simply reclaiming the Sabbath and redefining it and bringing it back into focus that the Sabbath is about the grace of God and it's proclaiming that. It's not setting up our rules and making sure we get every jot and tittle just correct so that we can keep ourselves safe that safety and healing and wholeness for this man was found in Jesus. And friends, that's the Sabbath of God that he puts out in front of us, that our wholeness, our well-being is found in his grace. It's in looking to Jesus, hearing his word, and then taking up our mat, rising and walking. This is what it looks like. But we sometimes are desperate to evade him. We don't want to have to deal with something so mysterious and powerful. It disrupts our ordinary reality. And so though people saw a lame man walking, they wanted to go back to the rules. Retreat to safety was the mindset. And the church can do the same today. And Jesus, as we encounter him authentically, he's going to expose every way that we try to evade him, whether it's with our rules or with our intellect, whether it's with our excuses, whatever evasion we try to put forward, Jesus is going to confront it. Now, one practical question that emerges here is how do we avoid this as a church? How do we avoid constructing systems of, of rules that we use to protect ourselves and shield out the living God? Jesus goes into a longer sermon in chapter 5, just at the close of the story that we've read. And at the end of chapter 5, he lays out the two problems of the religious community, the church that was before him. You'll note this in verse 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is Jesus' first critique, is that the church was wrapped up in selfish ambition and that its leaders and its people were seeking praise from one another. In a few verses ahead of this, he says that you don't actually love God that you're caught up in the love of other people and the praise of other people. And this is a sickness and an illness that can paralyze the entire church, is where we're caught up in the opinions of others and the approval of others, where that is more important than actually knowing and loving the living God. And this is what we must always hedge out and protect against. If you want to construct rules, construct rules about that that we not attempt to hedge out the living God and keep him outside, and that we seek to promote our own glory in our midst. Those are rules worth constructing, that we not be selfishly ambitious. But the second piece to this is found in verses 45 and 46. Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? And the intent of where Jesus is driving here is he's driving against a religious practice that prizes the Bible, but it's a religious practice that has taken Jesus from the center of that Bible that the grace of God has been severed and pulled out. And so parts of scripture were being held up and it can look very impressive and it can seem orthodox and theological and it can bring many people along with it, but it's divorced from the life of the living God, that he's assigned that life to be in Jesus Christ. And so all of scripture is to be read through the lens of Jesus. And as church communities, when we become caught up in selfish ambition, self-promotion, when we become caught up in the praise of other people, when we become caught up in the approval of other people, this is what Jesus says the problem is. We're quickly then on the way to a man-made traditional religion. And when we begin to relate to the Bible in a way that's not centered upon Jesus, where he is not the central focus of the story, then we are on the way to a man-made religion. And Jesus gives us these two boundaries to help protect us, to identify how do we remain faithful as a people who are not to construct rules to keep ourselves safe, but yet how do we remain faithful to this grace of God that comes to us in Jesus? Now, the third piece of this encounter is that as we encounter Jesus, He directs us to the dynamics of grace that are at work in our lives. See a strange order that takes place in the passage where Jesus encounters the man, then the man goes out and he is confronted about why he's carrying his mat. And then Jesus finds him again in the temple. Now you'll note that the man had done the right things. He went through the temple to offer thanks and praise to God and present himself as clean to the priest. Jesus finds him there. And then in verse 14, note what he says, see You are well, or that could be translated, you are whole. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And in one very short, brief sentence, Jesus captures for us the very dynamics that the grace of God brings into our lives. You are well, you are whole. It's the statement of what God has done for us. This man had been healed. He was walking. His sins had been forgiven. In faith, he had risen up and he had taken up his mat and walked. He had obeyed the command of Jesus. He had trusted him, gotten over all of his resignation. He had experienced the grace of God. On the backside of that experience, there is then a command, sin no more. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that the man would never sin again. And we don't know what sin Jesus was addressing in this man's life. Scripture doesn't permit us to know. But what we do know is that this man was commanded to go in a new direction. Not a life under his own steam, not a life in his own power, not a life filled with the resignation and self-pity that had characterized it before, but rather he was to go in a new direction, a new trajectory was being set for him. Not where he earns his keep by not sinning with God, but he lives in the forgiveness and grace of God that gives him a new future with new possibilities in front of it. Jesus here is not encouraging a sinless perfectionism, because that's no reality for any of us as we steal as we still labor with the reality of a divided heart but he does open up the possibility of change of transformation that in the forgiveness that god extends to us in jesus and as his spirit lives within and dwells within and abides within that there is change that happens Jamie Smith, in his book Desiring the Kingdom, speaks to this very powerfully where he talks about two different models that the church has often used to talk about change. And he says the most common model, he said you could think of being pushed along by a series of rules and regulations and obligations, things that you're supposed to do. And so you're pushed forward by a sense of duty. And Smith then asks the question in the book, he says, but have any of us ever meaningfully experienced change because we're pushed, because there's a sense of obligation? He answers the question, no. And he reflects, despite being a very philosophical book, he reflects on the existential level. He says, no, the way change takes place in our lives is that we're drawn by something Something attractive is put in front of us and it pulls us. That our love and affection is attached to it and we begin to move after that thing. And yes, there's imperfection and there's certainly many sins along the road, but we're drawn by something that has compelled us. And that's what Jesus lays out here for this invalid man who had been lost in his sins, who had been lost in his resignation, who had no hope, but who was suddenly walking, that he had been made whole, and he was to go, and he was to follow after the living God. And those are the dynamics of grace in your life as well. And allow the grace that Jesus encounters you with, that he meets you with even today, In the forgiveness of your sins, hear his voice that he has made you whole and allow him to pull you along, to be drawn as to what it then means to become a whole person. That's the grace of God. And that is the grace that Jesus extends to religious professionals like Nicodemus, to a broken morally compromised, polytheistic woman in chapter four. And to this invalid man, it's the grace the entire world needs. It's the grace that you, it's the grace that I all require. That's what he has on offer. And so rise and take up your mat. You can break the Sabbath like that. Let's pray. Father, we do look to you and we ask that you would overwhelm us with the grace that is ours, that you have made us whole. And so may we rise and may we know what it is to follow after you, to be drawn along into a new life, endeavoring after new obedience, finding your grace sufficient. Meet us in that way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.